Psalm 121. Let's read it. It's only six verses. And then we'll pray. And then we will get into it together. Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. For whence comes my help? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and even forevermore. Father, we, we need you. We need you to help us to understand not just the words on the page, but understand the message that's for us. We need to understand, Lord, how we are to respond to what you say in your word. Lord, we do recognize that this was written by somebody thousands of years ago. We do recognize that the context in which it was written is not the same as our context, but we also believe, Lord, that this still applies to us as those who want to follow after you. And so we pray, Lord, you would teach us what that looks like. We pray your Holy Spirit would quicken our hearts, that we wouldn't just understand ideas, but we'd see you for who you are, and we'd understand how you want us to live this out. Please, Lord, we pray that we would actually do this today, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So Psalm 121 is one of about 10 or 15 psalms that are called Songs of Ascent. Some of your versions will have that little title on there, a Song of Ascent. From, from Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, these are all songs of ascent, and these, these were songs that they sung that, that Israelites would sing as they ascended up the hill to Jerusalem for worship. God had said that every, at least every male, if not every family, needed to go to Jerusalem three times a year to worship at these different feasts. And this was not a simple thing. It wasn't just like getting a coach ticket or a train ticket or you know, calling an Uber to get you there. You really had to kind of plan out how you could finish the work that you had to do before you got there. You had to travel among very treacherous roads. You had to travel often through, through weathers that weren't conducive to traveling by foot. Sometimes you had to do this with small children at your feet. And, and, and this was all about moving toward worshiping the God who made a covenant with you, the God that sought after you and wanted you to know him. And so when they would do this, they would do this, as you can imagine, in a group. And as they're doing this in a group, as they got to the place where you go up to Jerusalem, and, and, and here's the way it works. If you've not been to Israel, most of you probably haven't been, but Jerusalem is on a hill. It's about 2,500 feet elevation. And so no matter what direction you come from, you actually go up to go to Jerusalem. And so as they were going up, as they were ascending up to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs, and they wouldn't just kind of sing them together. The idea was they would sing these songs to one another. 
this was meant to be a, a song where, yeah, the, their, their worship was going towards God, but the words were meant to go towards the people. The words were meant to encourage the people. They were to sing this out as a way to encourage each other as they're ascending the hill, as they're moving toward the worship of God. And it's interesting because in the New Testament, we see a similar command. In Ephesians 5.19, it says this. It says that we should be speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Do you see that? Do you see the, that our hearts are towards God, our worship is towards God, but the words are towards people? That there is the sense of, of both the vertical, you worshiping God, and the horizontal, you encouraging each other in our worship. And these songs of ascent are the perfect example of this. And what's interesting to me about Psalm 121 is it gives us this really great framework of what we need to be singing to each other. I'm not saying that this is the only song that we should ever sing to each other. Obviously, we sang others today. But the message that's in this song is what we need to be singing to each other. We need to encourage each other in song we need to encourage each other when we come together. It's not just about, hey, I'm really enjoying the worship here. The music was great. Or I really felt something personally. That's all great when that happens. But really, we're gathering together to worship for a reason. We gather together to help one another trust Jesus. That's why we sing. We sing songs to help each other trust Jesus. And so we're going to see this kind of framework from Psalm 121. I'm going to give you three, three kind of main things that I think that we need to be singing to one another. Themes we need to be singing to one another. If you have a little A5 sheet, they're on that A5 sheet, but follow along with me. The first thing in verses 1 and 2 is that we, we see, here's a theme, we are always needy, but we're never helpless. As God's people, we're always needy, but we're never helpless. Verse 1 says this, I will lift my eyes to the hills, from whence comes my help? Now, New King James has a question mark. If you have another version, it might just be a statement. But the idea is the same. The idea is, as they're waking their way up to Jerusalem, they're seeing other sort of lower hills. But they are indeed high places. They're places that probably had, at one point, a, 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 an altar to worship a false god. In fact, this was something that the Israelites, God's people, were often pulled to. They were pulled to worshiping false gods. The thing about false gods is you can control them. The thing about false gods is they do what you want them to do. Or at least they don't tell you what to do. The thing about false gods is they, 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 are, they are often made after our own image rather than we being made after the image of God. And it was, it was a constant theme throughout the history of Israel, of God's people, where though God, the creator God, had revealed himself to them, he had done radical miracles in bringing them out of Egypt when they were slaves, and he had done radical miracles to prove himself that he was this creator God. He was bigger than these kind of small little g gods. At times, they, they would think it's just easier to worship the same little gods that everybody else in, in our area worships. And so they were tempted to go up to these high places, these hills, and worship false gods. We see this, Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah 3.23. He says to the Israelites, return you backslidden children, and I will heal your backslidings. Truly in vain is salvation hoped for from the hills. 
for from the multi or from the and from the multitude of the mountains truly in the Lord our God is the salvation of Israel. And so this is kind of what the psalmist is this is what these guys are singing to each other. I lift my eyes up to the hills, false god, false god, false god. But where does my help come from? Not from there. I'm going to look past there. I'm going to keep going up to Jerusalem, to the place where I'm going to meet with the God who's created all things, the God who's made covenant with us. In fact, it's interesting because he says, uh, I, my help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. This is what we see happening over and over again in, in, the, in the praise and the prayers of God's people throughout the scripture. They go back to the reality that God is the creator over and over again. It's interesting to me for a couple of reasons. One is I think that we, we, tend to, we tend to kind of ignore the fact that every good thing in our life comes from God. As the creator, he's the one who's initiated and who provides every good and every perfect gift. This is exactly what the scripture says in James chapter 1. It says every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes from uh, comes down from the Father of lights. God's the giver of every good gift. Now this is important. Because often what happens is the good gifts that God gives us can often be the things that we tend to try to worship as God, little g. So, so we, we, we look at the things that, that really help us. We look at our relationships, our marriages, our family life, our friendships. And we think these are good things. Certainly these things are worthy of my investments. And they are. But they're not necessarily worthy of your faith. We, we, we look at things like, like different kinds of pleasures that tend to kind of help us relax or, or feel better. And we think certainly this is a good thing. Certainly God, in my case, God wants me to rejoice myself, rejoice in, in a big meal every day. Three times. <laughs> Certainly there's comfort in this. This has got to be God's provision for me. But it's a funny thing. These good things, when they become God things, become bad things. And this is kind of the idea that, that they're singing to each other about. They're singing, hey, where does our help come from? It doesn't come from that thing. It's a good thing, but that's not where our help comes from. It doesn't come from that good marriage. It doesn't come from that good family life. It doesn't come from that good physical provision. The good thing that we really need is God himself. We need to recognize that. We're needy, but we're not helpless. We need to look past the things that tempt us to find help. And so, no, no, God, you're our help. And you know what else, too, with this? And we've talked about this so many times before, but it's funny because we keep falling back in these same traps, don't we? These things, these good things, especially when it comes to relationships, when we look at those relationships and we think, that's what's going to sustain me, that's what's going to keep me going, you know we actually destroy those relationships? Because the pressure that we put on people to be God for us, they can't handle. Or if they can handle, you're probably in an abusive relationship because they want to be treated like God. Where does our help come from? Our help comes from God. Now, that's the first thing. We're always needy, but we're never helpless. Our help always comes from God. It's interesting, too, because sometimes we forget that, that God does really want to do good in our lives. And we have to look back to the cross. 
We have to look back to Jesus and say, okay, this is how much God loves us. He so loves us, he gave his, his only son. In fact, this is what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Paul says that God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? See, we, we, sometimes I think we have this mindset. I'm talking about those of you who are already Jesus followers. And some of you guys, this is all new to you. You're not really sure what I'm talking about yet, possibly. But those of you who are already Jesus followers, you're hearing this, you're going, yeah, yeah, okay, I, I think that's true. But I bet you, you fall into the same temptation I fall into. You fall into this place where you think, okay, I, I know God loves me. I, I know, but you know, okay, Jesus died for me. I shouldn't ask for anything else. I shouldn't expect anything else. God sent Jesus, I shouldn't get anything else. But you know what God says? God says, here's the standard I set for my generosity. I gave my own son. So whenever you need help for anything, you can know, you can come to me. You can come to him. We're never helpless. The cross proves that God is our ever-present help in time of need. The cross proves it. At the cross, Jesus met us at our lowest state. At the cross, Jesus dealt with our worst sins. At the cross, Jesus showed how much he was willing to enter into our most horrific suffering. At the cross. So when you lift your eyes up and you're tempted to look at the hills, oh, if, if maybe my marriage was better, then I'd be okay. If my, if my kids would just be where they want, I'd be okay. If, if my schoolwork went the way it was, if my friends were there for me, that's where I'll find help. No, no, no. Look to the God who took on flesh, became a man and died for you and met you there. We're always needy, we're never helpless. Then in verse three, what does he say? It says, the Lord, he says, the Lord is your, I'm sorry, wrong verse. He says, he will not allow your foot to be moved. Now, he doesn't mean that he, he says, he will make sure you stand still. That's not the idea. The idea is, as you're on this journey, you're not going to trip up. Now, imagine these guys singing this to each other. They are ascending up the hill on some treacherous roads. As they're ascending up the hill, there's this, probably these very narrow paths full of slippery gravel and rock. and it would, be, it would be easy as you're walking, especially if you're carrying a load of supplies on your way to Jerusalem, to trip and fall and have a very serious injury. And there was no health benefits back then. If you hurt yourself and you couldn't work, your family could possibly starve to death. You'd be in a really bad place. And so the idea is, he's not going to let you trip up. He's going to protect you. He's going to keep you through this. That's the idea that he's saying. Now, it's interesting here because when he says that he will not allow your foot to be moved, there, there's, a, there's an idea here that, that God is, is doing something, that he's always working towards something. He's making sure that whatever fall you may experience, it won't be your permanent uh, dis destruction. That, that you may trip but you'll get up again. There's a Proverbs, I can't remember where it is, but there's a Proverbs that says that the righteous man falls seven times, but he gets up thereafter. And so there's this idea that, you know, yeah, okay, you may trip, but guess what? That's not going to be the end. That's not where you're going to lay and stay. It's going to, you're going to be able to move forward. It won't be a permanent tripping up is the idea. And again, the New Testament pulls out a similar idea. In Jude's little postcard of an epistle, Jude writes this. He says, 
Now to him, that's speaking to God, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to prevent you, I'm sorry, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Interesting. When you, when you see people uh, coming into the very presence of God in the scriptures, their response is not initially joy. It's terror. They see God and they go, oh, and they, so oftentimes they just faint. They fall on their face, fainting. It's terror. Isaiah the prophet, we see the first five books of, or first five chapters of Isaiah, and he's prophesying against Israel. You guys are blowing it. You guys are doing all these things wrong. And then in, in chapter six, he gets this vision of God. God shows himself. He gets an exalted vision of God. And he says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I don't among the people of unclean lips. Woe is me. And you see this all throughout the scriptures, Old and New Testament. That when they see God, there's a terror. You know why there's a terror? Because when we see God as he is, we see ourselves as we are, and we realize how woefully we fall short. We realize how bad we actually are. That's all of us. So when we read this from Jude, and he says, Jude says, hey, this is, remember, keep your eyes on him who is able to keep you from stumbling, like it says in the Psalm 121, and is able to present you before his presence, not with terror, but exceeding joy. We've got to think, how does that work? Do you realize there's a promise here? That what God is doing is he's working in us, he's working in his people, he's changing us so that we can be prepared to face God one day with exceeding joy. You know, there's that verse in Revelation that talks about how God's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. I, I think about this a lot because I, I, the more, the, the older I get and the, the, the longer I, I walk with God, the more I realize, gosh, I really do fall short. I really do mess up so much. I really just am not a very loving person. I'm not a good person. I, I mean, I just see this more and more. I was sharing with someone this week about how... Um, Last, uh, last uh, couple weeks ago at my birthday party and they showed the film of all these people giving thanks for my life. I was listening to this going, why are these people lying? You know, because I was feeling like, this isn't true. This isn't me. And, I, and you kind of realize, well, it's not me. It's what God's done through me. But I, I remember I was telling this person that I, I felt like what it's going to be like what we, uh, when we see God face to face. Around the throne in, in Revelation 4 and 5, you see all the saints around the throne. What are they doing? They're casting their crowns before the feet of Jesus. And it was, it was I felt like, gosh, I got a taste of that because here they were crowning me in a sense. I was being honored for the work that God had done in their lives. I was being honored for that. And I was thankful that God had used me. I was going, wow, Lord, I, you know, I, I underestimate what you can do. But I was also going, this is not me. If I would have had a crown, I would have chucked it. <laughs> because you realize it's, it's not me. And I think, God, how are you going to get me from where I am right now as this broken, sinful person to that place where I stand before you and I just enjoy throwing my crowns before my feet? You know what? It's a long process, and we meet here every Sunday to talk about how he's going to do that, but right now, you know what you need to know? He's going to do that. And everything that he's doing, all the work that he's doing is a work toward that joy. Have you ever thought about that? He goes on to say in verse 3, 
He says, he who keeps you, that's speaking of God, God who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The idea here is bigger than just, it's bigger than just um, that he's awake. God's watching. He's awake and he's watching. The idea here is that he is diligently acting for our benefit. That's the idea. When the Bible says God doesn't slumber or sleep, that's the idea. The idea is that he's not just awake, he's actively working. This is important. It's important because sometimes we get this picture of God that maybe he's up there and he's just kind of watching us all squirm like ants. Going through our stuff and he just seems to be inactive. I mean, isn't this what often people accuse God of? Maybe you're here this morning visiting and you have this question in your mind. It's the most common question. If God's so good, why doesn't he do something about all the suffering in the world? What is that? It's an accusation that God isn't doing something. And you guys as Christians, we do, we, as Christians, we do the same thing, don't we? God, why don't you do something? Why didn't you do something? And what are we assuming? We're assuming God isn't actively working. But what does the scripture actually say? God is always actively working. Listen, again, what God says to Israel. Through Isaiah, he says, Sing about a fruitful vineyard. I, the Lord, watch over it. I water it continually. I guard it day and night so that no one may harm it. God says, do you understand? He says to his people, do you understand? I am actively working even when you can't see it. See, this is what we need to sing to each other. Not just, hey, we're always needy, but God, we're never helpless. God's there for us. But also we need to sing, hey, God's always working, though he's rarely seen. And that is a reality. Sometimes we, we are looking so hard to find something we can prove that is God, we're actually missing on what God's actually doing. Now, if you've read the book of Acts... You can read the book of Acts and you go, wow, I mean, there are some crazy supernatural things that God is doing. In fact, th those things are so intense, there's a whole bunch of, of Christians who love Jesus and love his word, real Christians, who think none of that stuff happens anymore. That was just for that time. Because it just seems so intense. Now, my conviction is that's not true. Not just from the stories that I've heard, but even when I read in the scripture, I think, no, stuff still happens. God still does some pretty mind-blowing miracles. But you know what we forget about the book of Acts? It was written over 30 years. It covers a 30-year time span. I've been a Christian for just over 30 years. If I just highlight with, to you guys the supernatural stuff, you guys would go, dang, John's spiritual. And you know better. <laughs> you think, wow, God's, God's done amazing miracles in and through that guy's life. And he has over a 30-year period. I, I don't always get to see God do that kind of stuff. But you know what? I'm sure, because the scripture says, God is always working. He's working. And we need to remind each other of this. He's always working. In verse 5, he says, the Lord is your keeper. In your Bibles, you probably might notice that the word Lord is all caps. That, that when, when the Bible has that, when you see the, the, the word Lord in all caps, it's because it's using God's covenantal name. We pronounce it Yahweh. We don't really know how it's pronounced because the Jews saw God as so holy, they wouldn't actually say his name. 
If, even today, if you, uh, an Orthodox or a ne- uh, kind of a, yeah, sort of neo-Orthodox Jew, when he writes God, he'll write G underscore D. He won't actually spell it even God because they feel God's so holy, they won't do that. So when we say, we would say Yahweh maybe, but this is Lord because they don't want to actually spell out God's covenantal name. But it's important that we recognize that here the psalmist is using God's covenantal name. It's important because he he wants us to recognize that there's a special relationship that we can have with our creator that comes only through being in covenant. And so you ask, what's a covenant? A covenant is a contract based on love. It's a contract based on love. A covenant is when two parties come together and they say, let's spell out an agreement and let's stick to that agreement. That's what a contract is, right? A covenant takes that to another end. It's, It's saying, look, we are going to be committed to this relationship so that we can meet these ends. It's not just like, hey, here's a legal document. It's a, we are committed. In fact, the word covenant in the Old Testament, literally means to cut. And it was the idea that what they would do when they would make this kind of agreement, this kind of covenant, they would get an animal, they would, they would sacrifice it, they'd cut it in half. They'd slay blood, very dramatic thing to do. And they'd cut it in half, and they'd walk through the, the cut pieces. And saying, it was like a way of saying, may God do this to us if we break our relationship with each other. And so when God makes a covenant with us, he says, listen, listen, this is a contract made in blood. This is a commitment in love. I'm going to stick to everything I've said I'm going to do. And so when, when the Bible uses this covenantal name of God, like it's doing here in Psalm 122, the idea is that, that God's saying, listen, do you recognize that you can know that I'm keeping you, that you can find shade at your right hand or shelter. We'll talk about what that means in a second. Because of this covenant. In fact, it's interesting when he says in verse 5, the Lord is the shade at your right hand. I mean, shade doesn't sound like, you know, shade's nice on a really hot day, which doesn't happen here that often. (laughs) But in this climate, in a desert climate where this was written, man, shade was life or death. But also shade was, when your enemy was attacking, one of the ways that if you felt like you're outnumbered and you needed to hide, you would find some really thick bush to hide in. And in the shadow of that bush or that forest, there'd be protection. So shade's protection that way as well. And so there's this idea, again, that that the psalmist is saying that these guys would sing to each other, that is, listen, hey, God is your hiding place. That's what the word refuge means. God is your refuge. See that all through the psalms? Hiding place. It's in God himself is your hiding place. Guys, God's always working, though he's rarely seen. In fact, often, listen, it's when we don't see what God's doing that we need to make sure that we're hiding in him himself. We need to go and say, God, okay, I have no idea what you're doing, but I'm going to hide, to use more language from the Psalms, under the shadow of your wing. I'm going to hide right there. This idea of of hiding in God, it seems kind of strange for us because if we're honest, we're usually trying to hide from God. 
if we think too much about that there's a God who's made everything, a God who's given us every good gift, it only exposes that we don't want to believe, that we're unthankful, that we sort of push God away. Or that we'd rather go to one of those high places and have a God that we made with our hands or with our imagination. And so we don't want to think about that too much. And so we tend to kind of hide from God. Hide behind intellectual excuses. Hide behind lifestyles. Hide behind the fact that Christians aren't always what they're supposed to be. But you know what happens when we begin to, to see Jesus as he is? When we begin to say, okay, Jesus is worthy to be trusted. We learn to stop hiding from God and we learn to start hiding in God. Listen to this. Paul writes this in Colossians chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. He's speaking to Christians. He says, for you died with Christ. It doesn't mean physically. Christ dies for us. It, it, he pays the death that we should have paid for our sin. He does that in our place. We are with him positionally. Christ died uh, for you died with Christ, and your life is, notice, hid with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. D do you see this? There's a promise that, that Paul's saying. Listen, if we have put our faith in Jesus, that is, we've acknowledged, we've, we've, we've decided to say, yes, we believe that as the Scripture says, Jesus is God's only Son who did live a perfect life, who did die on a cross on purpose for my sin, who did rise again from the dead three days later, and that guarantees that I can be right with God. That's the good news. I believe in Him. I trust in that Jesus. When we do that, guess what? Our life is then hid with Christ in God, and our expectation is, is that when Jesus comes back, we get to enjoy life as it's meant to be. The kingdom comes in its fullness. Now, obviously, in Psalm 121, when they're singing to each other, they don't have all those ideas in their head yet because Jesus hadn't came yet. But when they're singing to each other, they are singing, you can hide in God. Hey, you, don't forget, you can hide in God. He's our refuge. He's our strength. They're singing that one to another. We're always needy, but we're never helpless. God is always working, though he's rarely seen. And here's the last thing, verses 6 to 8. We're often struggling, but we need to know we're always kept. God's always keeping us. Look at verse 6. He says, The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. Now, we hear that and we think, okay, I understand the sun bit. It's hot. You know, if you live in a hot climate, you need shade. Okay, I get that. How's the moon going to hurt you? There are some people who think this is talking about the, the, the idea that some people used to believe that the, a full moon made people crazy. It's where we get the term lunatic. Now, I, I don't think that's what this is about. I think this is simply a reference back to you, a reminder to them of when God delivered them from Egypt as slaves and took them through the wilderness. This is why. Listen to what the Bible says in the book of Exodus. And the Lord went before them uh, by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so as to go by day and night. And so I, I think what they're doing is they're, they're reading this, and it's kind of reminding them of the wilderness wanderings. It's reminding them that God was with them as they went from coming out of being slaves and they were going into the promised land. As they're in that journey, from knowing that they've been redeemed out of slavery to knowing that they dwell in the land they're supposed to dwell in. 
And that's analogous for where we are. We know, if we're Christians, we know God's redeemed us from our sin. He's forgiven us. He's brought us into a right relationship with Him. And one day when He comes back, we're going to be perfected and we're going to live in this perfect world the way the world's supposed to be with Him forever. And where are we now? In between. We're journeying. And where is God? He's with us. That's the point. You see, this is really important, especially as you picture these pilgrims making their way up to Jerusalem. They're making their way up to Jerusalem and they're singing this to each other because where are they going? We're going to meet with God. We're going to worship God. And where is God? He's with us already. Isn't that awesome? They know there's something special about God's manifest presence in the temple that they're going to honor and worship and, and, and from a distance, really, experience. But they also know that God's with them in the journey. We need to know that. God's with us. Interesting too, again, taking this to the New Testament, we see a same thing happening in the book of Hebrews where the author of Hebrews writes this. He says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, coming from the point of being out from being slaves to the point of the promised land. Let's run that race with endurance. He says, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I love that the NIV uses those words, pioneer and perfecter, because the idea of pioneer is the one who cut the path. It's like there was this dense brush and forest, and no one could get through it. The, the, the sharpest machete would just kind of not be sufficient to get through it, and Jesus went right through it. He was cut up, he was torn to pieces, but he went right through it, and he cut a path so that we could walk it. But not only that, listen, he's the perfecter of our faith. It's the idea that he's finishing it. What did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, listen, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He said that to him. He says the last thing he says to him before he ascends to heaven really is basically, I am with you to the end of the age. In other words, I'm on the journey with you. He didn't just say, here's what you need to do. Follow the path, you'll get there. Here's the map. He says, here's the map. Let's walk this together is what he says. See, we don't worship a book. We read the book. We say, okay, this is good. God's given us his word. We believe it's, it's right and it's good and it's trustworthy. So we read this book. We study this book. We want to do what this book says, but we don't do it alone. He's with us on the journey. This is what we need to sing to each other. God's with you. God's with you in the journey. Verse 7, it says, The Lord shall preserve you from all evils. He shall preserve your soul. This is talking about the fact that God, again, is going to keep you to the very end. Now, notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say, The Lord can preserve you from all evil. He can preserve your soul. Do you know why it doesn't say that? Because we already know that. We, we, that's kind of common sense, isn't there? If there's a God, our assumption, at least in the West, our assumption, if there's a God, he's, he's got all the power. That's what makes him God. He's the strongest. And so we think he can do this, so we really don't doubt his ability, but what this is is a promise, listen, that God has both the power and the willingness to keep us. You don't have to convince God to preserve you, to keep you. You just have to trust Him. The Bible says this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, it says, You are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, 
being ready to be revealed in the last time. Do you get that? Who's keeping you? God is. How is he keeping you? His power. How do you access that? Faith. I'm just trusting he's doing that work. God's keeping me. They're singing this to each other. God's keeping you. God's going to get you there. You know, the, the thing in me, this is, I, I know that a lot of you who are Christians come from uh, church backgrounds where they teach you that you can lose your salvation. Even our group of churches, Calvary Chapel, there are some guys who believe you can get to a point where you lose your salvation. I know a lot of people believe that and they love Jesus. I'm not saying they don't. But here's why I'm convinced that can't be. I'm convinced that can't be because one, if I could lose it, I would have done it already. I would have lost it a long time ago because I know how bad I am. You know what else? I see the very promises of God in the scripture and I think, God, if you're not going to do this work, there's no way this is going to happen. And I see the promises of God that God is going to do that work and I trust him that he's going to get me from point A to point B. We read that earlier in Jude, right? Now unto him who is able, not me, him who is able to present me faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. God's going to make that happen. We need to sing that to each other. Because you know what we feel like a lot of times? I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to make it. And it's funny because we believe that lie. I'm not going to make it. Long before we verbalize that lie. We'll go to church for months believing I'm not going to make it. Sometimes we go to church and we get involved in ministry and stuff to kind of sort of prove or sort of earn or sort of make it happen. Stir it up. But you know, that never works. You know what works? What works is when we realize, God, you have to do this. And so I want to trust you and I want to respond to you and I want to help my brothers and sisters respond to you by singing to each other that God's going to keep you. God's going to keep you. Lastly, verse 8. The Lord shall preserve your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Now don't forget, the journey for these pilgrims on the ascent up to Jerusalem was a perilous one. And so their comings uh, out and they're going, I'm sorry, they're going out and they're coming in probably speaks of the traveling back and forth to Jerusalem. It's not an easy journey. But they need to know that God's keeping them and he's doing something good. Even in the things they're going to suffer. Folks, don't get this idea that every pilgrim, because there were millions of them, millions of pilgrims over the years who made their way up to Jerusalem and then back to their own towns and villages. Don't think for a second that all those people went there, everything was wonderful, no one ever got sick, no one ever got robbed, no one ever got murdered, no one ever got raped, everything was always wonderful. No, it was a disaster. They were the most vulnerable sheep you can imagine. Very difficult thing. So God gives us promise that God's going to preserve your going out and your coming in. And we think, how does that work? We think, okay, when I'm when I'm trying to do the right thing and things go pear-shaped, how does that work? How is God keeping me then? And it's then that we need to remember the whole context of the Songs of Ascent. We are to sing this to each other. Let me ask you something. 
If you're, you're the pilgrim going up to Jerusalem and you hear the songs being sung and you look over and you hear the woman who lost her husband singing to you about the faithfulness of God. Or you see the man whose, whose, whose uh, child was just killed singing that you can trust God to keep you. Or you see the family that are about to have their umpteenth child and they cannot feed that child and they're still singing to you, you can trust that God's going to keep you. And you see them in the midst of a bunch of people whose lives seem to be better than yours. Whose voice are you going to listen to? You're going to listen to the one who can still sing this. They can still sing. God's going to preserve your going out and your coming in. Even when all this junk happens to you. Guys, this is the promise of Scripture. Listen. Romans 8, 28 and 29 says that, For we know that all things work together for our good to those who love God to those who are the called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew he also predestined uh, to be conformed into the image of his Son. The promise is this. God says, all your suffering is helping not just you, but all of God's people to become like Jesus so they can enjoy God forever. Because God can't give us anything better than himself. God is using your pain to keep all of us for eternity. And when you gather together and you're feeling like, I just, I can't sing these words. God, I'm not feeling it. Or I'm in such pain, I don't know if I can do this. Do you realize that God says, listen, don't hide from your pain. Hide in me, in your pain. Sing to me because I'm using that to help everyone else. That's for all of us. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. I'm going to ask the ushers to put the elements of communion on the side. Can we put the elements of communion some juice and cracker on that side and also some juice and cracker on that side, please. Guys, because this is true, because it's true that we are always needy but we're never helpless, because it's true that we're, God's always working though we rarely see Him, and because it's true that we're often struggling but we're always being kept, because that is true, let's sing this to each other. Let's, let's sing our need for God. In fact, let me say to you personally, you, you sing your need for God so that we can trust that He's our help. And you sing about His work in your life that we can trust that God's working even if we can't see it. And you sing about His keeping power so that we can persevere through the struggle. Listen, the worship is to God, but the words are for one another. Sing it that way. By faith, sing it that way. 